All right, well, it's good to be back tonight, and um, we're back in our study to Philippians. It's great to have notes to preach from, and we are happy. Okay, so you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. If you weren't here last week, you have no idea what we're talking about. Um, my computer crashed about 45 minutes before I was supposed to come in here, and I had no notes. <clears throat> so, everybody, I thought <laughs> I sort of promised them this is going to be my shortest sermon ever. And it ended up being my longest sermon ever. So everybody's happy that I, <clears throat> that I have notes tonight. All right. Well, we're back in Philippians, and um, we're just going to cut right to it here. Uh, we saw last week that we're still in really what's Paul's opening remarks of this letter, his, you know, his opening statement to these Philippian believers. And I'm sure you remember from the background, Paul is in prison. Remember that? He's in prison writing this letter. And then all of a sudden, uh, one of the leaders from the Philippian church shows up. His name is Epaphroditus. We're going to learn more about him in chapter 3. And he brought Paul a significant amount of money to help take care of his needs while he was in prison. But he also brought some news of what was going on back in the church in Philippi. Conflict was brewing between some of the members, and they apparently needed help uh, navigating this conflict. So Paul wrote them this letter, the letter to the Philippians, to to do a number of things, but the main thing is to help shepherd them through these challenges the church was facing. Now, if I was writing this letter, I know it would be tempting for me just to jump in and start addressing issues immediately, right? So, sitting there, there's not much I can do except write a letter, pray. So, I would be trying to jump into reconciling conflict and getting into these principles. But that's not what Paul does. He doesn't do that immediately. Instead, he starts this letter by telling them how thankful he is to God for every single one of them. So, in a way, he is shepherding them. He starts this letter by telling them how he rejoices over them how endeared he is to them for their partnership in the gospel. Even though he is in prison, even though he's suffering tremendously, even though this church is struggling, he is shockingly content. He is profoundly thankful to God. His tone is warm and affectionate. His words drip with just absolute confidence. And that's because Paul knew deep in his bones that God's good plans cannot be stopped. The Romans may have thrown him in prison. They might even kill him. But ultimately, try as they might, they cannot stop what God is doing. They can't stop what God's doing in Rome. They can't stop what God's doing in Philippi. And the same is true today. That we, enemies of Christ cannot stop what God is doing. And this was Paul's deep conviction. It was his conviction that God finishes what he starts. He says this in in verse 6. We saw this last week. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that God will see to it to keep these Philippians faithful. God will see to it to complete the work, to see them through to the kingdom. And that's why Paul could give thanks. That's why Paul could rejoice no matter what happened to him. And he wanted to remind the Philippians and even us tonight to adopt this same conviction that God's at work. His good and sovereign plans can't be thwarted. Now, as we move through this letter, we're going to see that this conviction of God's sovereign goodness, we might say, the conviction that God's good plans for us can't be stopped, that this, this conviction that he will, he, because he saved us, he's going to bring us to full transformation, that conviction is really the bedrock for so much of how we live. Not only will believing this produce so much joy and thanksgiving and contentment, like we saw last week, but in Paul's next paragraph, the paragraph for tonight, we see that this conviction leads to confident prayer. 
Knowing that God has purpose to transform believers actually motivates Paul to ask God to do that very thing. It moves him to intercede for God's people. And it should do the same for us. But if you're a person that likes to think, um, you might wonder about this. You know, I, talk to, I talk to folks often about this issue. If God really is sovereign, if He really is just going to accomplish His plans anyway, why do we need to ask Him to do it? You ever thought that? I've wondered the same things myself. But what I want you to see here is that God's sovereignty had the opposite effect on Paul. It didn't cause him to just throw up his hands and say, what's the use? God's going to do it anyway. Why why, why pray if God's just going to go ahead and, and accomplish his will? It didn't lead to prayerlessness for Paul. It led, it fueled Paul's prayers. But why is that? Well, Paul knows that God accomplishes his sovereign will through means. All right? That's key. God accomplishes his sovereign will, and the way he does that is through means. In other words, God uses, he uses stuff to make his will a reality. He uses people, specifically, to bring it about. And other things, nature, events of history. And one of the ways that he, that he uses people is he uses his own people through their prayers. God has ordained the prayers of His people to effect real and lasting change on earth. God wants us to ask Him for fruit. He's leaned forward. He's attentive to our prayers. He's ready to respond. And not only is He ready to respond, ready to answer, but He promises to answer when we pray according to His will. You see, Paul prayed because he believed that God would channel his sovereign power through his own prayers. And if you're a believer here tonight, do you realize that you have the same access to God as Paul did? You have been brought into the the throne room, and the great king is listening. Astoundingly, you have his ear, and he stands ready to put his infinite resources to action to grant your requests. And Paul believed these things. He believed in a sovereign God, and so he prayed. And he experienced the joy of seeing God answer his prayers. But what's kind of doubly interesting about our passage tonight is that not only does Paul tell us he prays, but he actually tells us what he prays. We get to see a glimpse of the heart of Paul's prayer for this church. And we get to learn from it. And we need all the help we can get, don't we? Because prayer, particularly intercessory prayer, is one of the most challenging of the spiritual disciplines, in my opinion. It's hard to stay devoted to it. It's hard not to wander off mentally. It's hard not to get overwhelmed by the sheer number of people and their needs. But tonight, we're going to have an example from Paul, and he will help us. And we're going to learn to intercede, really, after his model. So I'm calling tonight's message, Interceding Like Paul. So let's go ahead and read uh, the paragraph. Really, we'll pick it up in verse 3 and read the entire paragraph because this is really the prayer report, um, the specific kind of application of all this paragraph. It's the conclusion to the paragraph. He says, "I I thank God, thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So we've, we've heard that he's praying. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, here's our text. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So tonight, there's a number of ways we could take this passage, but I just want to draw out three features of this prayer and kind of hang all of our thoughts around these, these, these features. Because Paul, like he typically does, he packs a lot into a very short amount of space. Uh, he tells us what he's praying. He tells us what to expect God to do if he's going to answer this prayer, kind of how to, how to get there. And he tells us, kind of gives us some motivation toward the end. So there's a lot, lot going on in this, in this little prayer that we can, that we can unpack tonight. But the, the, the gist of it, where I want to go with this at the end, is just motivation and help for you to pray. And for you to intercede for others. So that's kind of where we're headed. But we're looking at three features of this intercessory prayer. And it, the first feature, we could, we could describe it like this. It's the request. And the request is that the Philippians abound in love. Or that their love abound. He says this in verse 9. In the beginning of verse 9. He's telling us what he's praying for. This is, the, this is the essence of Paul's request. He says, and it is my prayer, here it is, that your love may abound more and more. So he's praying for the increase of love in this church. Paul's longing, what was most on his heart for this church, was that they abound in love more and more. But their love keeps on growing. But love for who? Who's he talking about? Well, Paul doesn't specify here. He just says love, love to grow. But I think from the context, we can be almost certain that he's praying that they grow in their love for each other. Their love for each other. Paul wouldn't deny that our love for God should abound. But I think in the context, what he's saying is love for one another in the Philippian, in the Philippian church. I'm going to talk more about that in just a second. But right now, I want you to notice the way he phrases this request, because it tells us a number of things about this church. For starters, it, it shows us that the church wasn't a completely loveless church. He doesn't pray that they start loving each other, right? He prays that they continue, that their love abounds, that it increases more and more. So that implies that the church had loved in the past, and we're loving today in some, in some way. But like we saw in kind of our intro message, and we've, we've talked about this throughout, this church was in the midst of a conflict. And I think it was a pretty big conflict, because Paul doesn't, he doesn't draw out names of individuals very often. And he does it in this letter. Yodi and Syntyche, and he tells them to agree in the Lord. And he calls on another person to help them agree. So lines were being drawn in this church, and they were in danger of regression, of their love growing cold. They were in danger of grumbling against each other and growing suspicious of each other. And oftentimes, so are we. People sin against us in the church, and sometimes we sin against others, don't we? Someone might gossip about you. Someone might be insensitive or make an insensitive or rude comment to you. Or you might make that rude comment to someone else. We sometimes get jealous because somebody has what, what we want to have for ourselves. We, we envy. So we make comments or we get upset or we put limits on the friendships that we have. You can talk to me about this, but you can't talk to me about that. Why? Well, because I'm envious of that. <laughs> I want what you have. We're jealous. We get on each other's nerves. We poke fun and we highlight the weaknesses of others. We often assign motives we assume the worst instead of assuming the best. I mean, we could just go on and on. My point is that sin happens in the church. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because we're bringing it in. 
And the temptation is to retreat. It's for our love to grow cold. It's to resent others. And that can happen right here in Boundless, just like it was happening in the church in Philippi. But what's incredible about Paul's prayer, and especially when you understand it against the backdrop of division in Philippi, what's incredible is that this conflict is the very context for their love to abound. It's the very situation God has brought to them to grow their love. Think about that. While their conflict was certainly a threat to love, it was also their opportunity to abound in it. It was their opportunity to learn to communicate honestly and humbly. That's love. It was their opportunity to confess their wrongs. That's love. It was their opportunity to, con- to, to forgive. That's love. And for others, it was their opportunity to be peacemakers rather than to fuel this division by taking sides. And that's love too. So this means then that we have to see God's hand even in the conflicts in the church. Conflicts are our opportunity to abound in love. In other words, when you pray this prayer... Someone may gossip about you so that you can abound in love. It's the context that love abounds. Now, before we leave this point, let's just do a little comparison of Paul's heart in prayer with our own hearts in prayer. Our prayers, what we ask God for, they often reveal what we think is most important. Make sense? When it comes to this church, Paul's greatest longing was not their safety and persecution. This church is being persecuted. His greatest longing was not that there were sick members to get better, even though I'm sure he cared about that, just like I'm sure he cared about their safety. It wasn't even that they don't lose their jobs, even though this was an impoverished church. His greatest concern, his deepest longing, is that they be a people who abound in the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. So when you pray for yourself and others, what's at the top of your prayer list? What do you long for most? For Paul, it was that God's people resemble God's Son. That's the greatest thing he could pray for, for them. In this case, it's that they abound in love, he says. Paul knows that a church that's deepening in sacrificial love is a powerful church. It's a church that will stick together through thick and thin. It's a church that will forgive offenses. It's a church that will share truth with others, even if it costs them inside and outside the church. It's a church that will evangelize the lost. It's a church that will go the extra mile for the good of others. It's a church that will plant other churches. It's a church that will be able to stand against the onslaughts of Satan over the long haul and remain faithful to Christ. If a church is abounding in love. It's the greatest thing Paul could pray for, and in Paul's example here often recalibrates our hearts. I know it does mine. It recalibrates what we long for most and thus pray for most fervently. There's absolutely nothing wrong with praying for other things like healing or financial stability or protection. These things are all good and noble things to pray for. And we even see some biblical examples of prayers like that. 3 John 2, the Apostle John prays for health, that, they would, that their health would, that they would have good health. 
But Paul's example here reminds us that fruit, and in particular the fruit of love, is one of the greatest things we could pray for for each other. So that's the heart of Paul's request. I mean, that, that this church and every church abound in love. But one thing I, I like about this prayer is that, that Paul also tells us what we can expect as God begins to answer this prayer. If God's going to cause us to abound in love, then He's going to take us down a certain path. And we'll call this second feature of God's prayer the process to abound in love. Or the process for abounding in love. It's His path that God's going to lead us down. And Paul elaborates this in the prayer. So He gives us the... the sort of content of the prayer or the request in the beginning, and then the process for, for the path that God's going to lead us down if we're going to actually abound in love. And it picks it up. I know the, verse, the verses are a bit odd in how, how I've outlined this, but I think this is really what's going on. Uh, in the second half of verse 9 is where we're picking this up. He says, In my prayer that your love may abound more and more, and here it is, process starts with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. With knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve of what is excellent. Now, I think what Paul's doing here is he's showing, the, showing us the process for abounding in love. So how might God answer this prayer for us? How might, he, how might we grow in love? Paul says it involves essentially three steps. It involves growing in what he calls knowledge. That would be step one. And then he says all discernment, which would be step two. And then that growth in knowledge and all discernment leads in or results in us being able to approve what is excellent or best. That would be step three. So let me just unpack those, okay? Let's go step one, uh, knowing Christ. I'm calling it knowing Christ and his love. Knowing Christ and his love. That's the first, if we're going to abound in love, that's the first step. That's the path, first step of the path that God's going to lead us down. At the end of verse 9, Paul adds an interesting little phrase to this request that, that our love abound. Literally, he says, he wants our love to abound with knowledge, that's how the ESV translates it, or in knowledge. Most of you, most other English translations, apart from the ESV, translate it as in knowledge. And I think Paul here is, is speaking shorthand, which kind of makes it difficult. Okay? So he's, he's dense, Paul's typically dense, I've studied a lot of Paul, he's very dense. Okay? And he often speaks in this sort of shorthand, and I think he's saying that knowledge and discernment, they're the means by which our love grows. So a way you could translate this would be, again, shorthand. Um, let me go back to the text here. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more by means of knowledge and all discernment. That would be a way you could translate this. Sounds awkward in English. But I think, I, think that's, I think it's his shorthand, and I think that's the idea he's getting at. In other words, as, as we grow in knowing Christ, as we become more discerning, our love is going to abound. So think about that. As we come to have a real knowledge of Christ, and I think that's the, that's the idea here. This knowledge, he's going to go on to develop this out in Philippians, and it's the knowledge of Christ, knowing him. As we come to have this real knowledge of, of, of Christ, as we come to really understand everything he's accomplished for us, as we learn to rest in his love every day, as we taste and see his goodness, we are equipped to bend out his very love. But we've got to know what it is. We've got to know Him. We've experienced it in the Gospel, and now Christ wants us to pay this love forward to love like we've been loved. That's, you know, if you're reading it from the NASB, that's real knowledge. That's how it translates this, this Greek word, is real knowledge. 
or we could say experiential knowledge. We've experienced knowing Christ. Paul's going to give us some of that knowledge in chapter 2 as he unpacks the nature of who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. Then in chapter 3, Paul's going to expand on this theme of knowing Christ and what this knowledge of Christ produces. And here he's saying that our growth in knowing Christ will lead to our ability to abound in love. And Paul has actually already modeled this in the previous previous text that we looked at. He modeled this when he told the Philippians that he yearns for them all, not with his own affection, but with whose affection? You remember? The affection of Jesus Christ. That's what he says over there in in verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all, Chapter 1, verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul's abounding in love because he knows Christ's love. And he's loving with Christ's love. So that's the first step. We've got to know Christ and his love for us. And the second step is discerning the best ways to love. Notice that we don't just increase in knowledge, Paul says, but we also increase in all discernment. Notice that little word all there. It's in front of it. He doesn't just say knowledge and discernment. He says knowledge and all discernment. And what's that referring to? He's talking about greater discernment into what love looks like in the various situations, in all the situations of our life. So what does it look like to love our roommates, or your roommates? I wouldn't really call my wife my roommate. What does it look like to love your roommates? Is it most loving to keep talking into the wee hours of the morning? Or is it most loving to graciously end the conversation? How about our friends at Boundless? Is it most loving to empathize with how much pain they're in after their boyfriend breaks up with them? Or to help them turn the corner to entrusting the situation to Christ? Is it most loving to confront their sin or to overlook the offense? How about that unbeliever at work? Is it most loving to press in boldly with the gospel or to respectfully wait until you're asked? If we're going to love well, we need discernment. We need insight into the application of love to the various situations of our lives. So Paul's praying for the increase of that. But it can't stop there. Okay? Once we know, we have to actually apply what we know in the moment. We have to actually love. And that's what this knowledge and discernment is intended to result in. It's what it's intended to produce. And that's exactly what Paul says next. That's step three. We've got to know, we've got to, we've got to put what we know of Christ into practice by deliberately choosing to love. Deliberately choosing to love. And that's, we're now bridging into verse 10. It says, He wants our love to abound more and more by the means of knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. So is this knowledge and discernment or increasing That's leading to your ability, we could say, to make decisions. To weigh out, yep, that's what I need to do in this scenario, and do it. Deliberately choosing to love. As we grow in real knowledge of Christ and of discernment in what He wants, we are equipped to make better choices in our daily lives. 
That's what Paul's getting at when he says to approve what is excellent. So let's unpack that. All right, what does that mean? To approve something means you've examined it, you've tested something, and you found it to be excellent. You know, you found it to be the best thing. Or Here's the idea. The idea is that we value and pursue what really matters. Okay? That's this idea of approving what is excellent, is that you value and then you pursue what really matters. We prioritize activities that are going to last, that we, that we choose to invest our time and attention in what is truly worthwhile, in what's meaningful, what's redemptive, what's transformative. He's talking about a way of life that brings true satisfaction, that brings deep and abiding joy and eternal reward. And here it's a life of love, a life lived in imitation of Christ. Making good decisions in these moments of actually loving others. So this means then if God's going to cause us to abound in love, that's the prayer. If he's going to cause us to do that, then we're going to, it's going to lead to us having to make deliberate choices in our daily scenarios to love. We have to deliberately choose to live our lives according to what is most valuable in God's eyes and not the world's eyes and not what our flesh might want in the moment. So, for example, the world is telling us right now to embrace our victimhood when people harm us. Right? Just embrace that. Embrace victimhood. People harm you, sin against you, But Christ tells us to love our enemies by forgiving them. That's a love choice. And that deliberate choice is not easy at all. But if we're going to abound in love, it's going to take these kinds of deliberate choices to pursue what really matters. And that's what Paul's getting at when he says, we will approve what is excellent if our discernment and knowledge are increasing. So all I want you to see here, this is a prayer, okay? We're going to work out love and how to love others well later. This is a prayer, and I want you to see that when we pray for ourselves and others to abound in love, we ask God to do that, when we ask God to accomplish these things, He is going to take us down this path. He's not just going to zap us with more love. We think that way, though, don't we? We pray for the fruit in our lives, and we think it's just going to happen. Like it's just going to be like a download, you know, into our lives. But there's a path. There's a responsibility that we have that God's going to lead us down this path. He's going to lead us to deeper knowledge of Christ and his gospel, which means we're going to have to work at understanding what the Bible says. Means we're going to have to put ourselves under good teaching. It means we've got to learn to discern what the best course of action is to love others in, in the situations of our lives, which that's going to mean you're going to have to get around other people who are ahead of you and ask them questions. That's called discipleship. You're going to have to seek out their counsel. And finally, it's going to involve actually pulling the trigger, actually making that deliberate decision to love others, which often costs you. As we lay ourselves down for the benefit of others, we're not taught love is not sentimentalism in the Bible. Love looks like the Son of God hanging naked on a tree being crucified. That's love. But the point here, the point I'm trying to make is that this experiential knowledge of Christ and his love, if you want a diagram, you know, here it is, that leads to discernment of how to imitate his love in the various situations of our lives. And then that leads to a conscious choice to love, often in death to ourselves. And that is sort of circular. It keeps compounding as the fruit compounds. And that's the process of God causing us to abound in love. So when it comes to the the feature of Paul's intercession, we've seen the request... We've seen what he prays for, which is love. We've also seen the path that God is going to take us down to cultivate this love in our lives. But there's one last feature of this prayer. Okay, as God grants this request, as the church starts abounding in love, 
and everything we just talked about starting to happen, we can look forward to some really incredible things. We'll call this third feature the result of abounding in love. The result of abounding in love. What's going to happen in the future that we can look forward to as we do this often hard work of abounding in love? We can divide this result. I've kind of I said it in the singular here because I think it's just one result. But we can divide it up kind of into two because they're really two sides of the same coin. He uses two different images. One is like future purity. And like kind of you think of maybe the, the bridal or marital image. Kind of like a pure bride. Even though he doesn't, he doesn't say the word bride, but it's just pure, pure and blameless. And then the other is, is, a, is a, an agricultural image of fruit. So purity and eternal fruit result as God grants this request for abounding love. Look with me in verse 10. All these things so that you may approve what is excellent. Here it is. And so, that's result language, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So let me divide these up for you. And then we'll put it back together. This first result, or first half, this, you know, one side of the coin here of this result is that we can expect purity for the day of Christ. As we experience Christ's love, kind of bring it all together, as we experience his love, as we grow in our discernment in how to love others, as we make those hard decisions to love day in and day out, Paul says this has, you ready for it? A purifying effect on your life. Literally, it results in us being pure and blameless. As we learn to love God, and we learn to love others, He is purifying the hidden motives. He's purifying our attitudes. He's purifying our actions. Now that's extremely encouraging. Because my motives are all over the place. And it is hard to even know what they are most of the time. But he is, te- he is telling us here that as we do the difficult work of, of renewing our minds and learning to love others in the practical situations of our life, that God is using that to purify your inner person. He's purging us of that old, dirty self that old nature that's corrupted through and through. And what's left behind is the pure new nature with its new impulses. This means it's learning to live in a way that is not enslaved to the defiling preoccupation with yourself. That defiling preoccupation that wonders what everybody else is thinking of me all the time. It's it's purifying us from the joylessness of envy and jealousy. It's purifying us from the self-focused fears that dominate us because we're trying to preserve ourselves. This kind of purity forgets about self because it's consumed with the joy of Christ. And it's busy with the good of others. That's what purity is. It's absolutely glorious. It's full of peace. It's full of joy. And our deliberate and often difficult choices to love other people is what causes us to experience purity. And right now, in this life. Now it's not going to be full purity. That awaits the next life but we do get to grow in it more and more and experience it more and more today. We'll see an example of this over in chapter 2. But Paul says as we become pure, he's saying that we're also becoming blameless. He says pure and blameless. 
Blameless, to be blameless is where an accusation doesn't stick to you. And it doesn't stick because you're becoming consistent in loving others. You're becoming consistent in joy. Not perfect. You're choosing to rejoice instead of grumble, we could say. You're choosing to be consistent in forgiving and reconciling instead of fighting and disputing with each other. And when we're living this kind of blameless life, Paul says we shine as lights in this evil world. And our church becomes a dazzling display of the word of life, of the gospel that brings transforming life to its people. And that's all because we're doing what? We're making these little, deliberate choices to die to ourselves and to love each other. Right here. Tonight. And it has a glorifying purpose right here in, in this world. Look over with me in Philippians 2. Notice, notice what he says here. He says, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 14. So that you may be, here's the language, blameless and innocent, children of God, listen to this, without blemish, when or where? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This isn't something for the return of Christ. I mean, it is, it's headed there, but this is right now. It's right here in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, he says. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. And this should be translated, verse 16, holding forth the word of life. Meaning, this church, by our purity, by our blamelessness, not perfection, but by this growing purity, growing blamelessness, we are holding forth to a broken, dead, defiled world that there is life here and now in this place of death. Look at us. As we learn to love, that's what's happening. You see why Paul prays for it? (laughs) Now, for him, all this growth is headed somewhere, and it's headed toward the day of Christ, he says. That's the ultimate goal of our purity and blamelessness, that we are pure and blameless for that day, the day of Christ. Like a bride preparing for her wedding day. Now, don't take the metaphor too far, but we want to look good for that day. It's kind of the point. We want to be pure and blameless as the bride of Christ so that when our divine husband looks upon us, so to speak, he rejoices in what he sees. And this life and our love now has implications for that day. Christ will rejoice in us because we've learned to love others like He has loved us. And so the next time you really don't want to reconcile, the next time you want to nurse bitterness because that person said something rude to you in the church, the next time you're tempted to be jealous, Think of the day of Christ. In this very moment of your temptation, it is an opportunity. You can beautify yourself for that day if you learn to love. If you learn to make a deliberate choice in the moment of this day, you can beautify yourself for that day. And don't miss the corporate element of this either. Not only are you beautifying yourself, but as a part of the church, you are helping to beautify all of us as you learn to love. So Paul says, as we learn to love, purity is a result. And as he finishes this paragraph, he finishes it with another we might call it like a complementary result, another way of saying the same thing, but with a different image. And that result is fruit for the glory of God. 
abundant fruitfulness for God's glory. It says here, verse 11, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So as we learn to love others in the difficulties of this life, Paul says this is how God fills our lives full of eternal and lasting fruit. Now, how Paul brings this paragraph to a close is beautiful. And it's just, it's thoroughly encouraging. So I want you to notice a few things, and we're going to wrap it up with some practical application. Okay? First, he calls this fruit the fruit of righteousness. You see that? And his point is that this fruit is righteousness. Not saying that you become righteous in the sense of God's receiving you now because you're learning to love. No, we're only received through Christ. But what he's talking about here, this phrase, fruit of righteousness, is a phrase from the Old Testament. This talking about real, tangible righteousness. Which means as you and I learn to love God, or learn to love, God is, is cultivating His righteousness in us. So we're, we're coming, you can think of it this way, we're coming to kind of actualize the righteousness that's been given to us in Christ. We already have it, it's ours, it's credited to us, in and through the work of Christ, and then he, we're learning to love, and that's sort of actualizing in real time, right now, this righteousness that we've already been given. We're coming to share in his character as we learn to love then. So that's what that phrase means, the fruit of righteousness. And next, did you, did you notice that as we are striving to love others, Paul says that it's actually God working behind the scenes to fill us with fruit. The verb uh, is a passive participle. It's being filled. We're not the subject of that verb, in other words. It's acting upon us. Something's acting upon us to fill us with fruit. Or we should say someone. And that someone is God. He is energizing our love. He's making it grow. He's making this fruit to be produced. And in the next clause, Paul gets specific. He says this fruit is explicitly through Christ. He is the one that's carrying it out. So it's as though God in Christ is underwriting our efforts to love. He stands behind them, causing it to blossom into eternal fruit. Now, what absolutely blows my mind about this fruit is that even though God is ultimately producing it in us, we're exerting effort, but God's the one that's underwriting this thing, he's producing it. God's still going to lavishly reward us for all of that effort. Now, this is not explicit here in in chapter 1, but it is over in chapter 4. In in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul is expressing his gratitude for their monetary gift. But he wants to assure them that he's not motivated by love of money. He doesn't care, ultimately, about the gift, he says. Instead, he's motivated, verse 17, by the fruit that increases to your credit. In other words, he's essentially saying that their action of love, when they provided for his needs, that fruit accrues to their credit. And that's what he is after. That's what he's seeking for them. More reward on the day of Christ. And the point I'm making here is that the fruit that God's producing is the fruit that he's going to turn around and reward you for in the coming kingdom. That's a crazy thought. That's astounding. It's generous. But in our text, over in chapter 1, Paul does not end with a focus on our credit for the fruit that's accruing to us. His thoughts are consumed with something even more glorious. He knows this harvest of fruit in our lives, it redounds ultimately to the glory and praise of God because God is the one who has produced it. And God is the one who has answered our prayers. 
And as such, he deserves all the ultimate credit. Look in verse 11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ as the agent to the glory and praise of God. This is the ultimate goal of this prayer. The glory and praise of God. So what a prayer report, right? Paul's dense. He packs a lot into a very short, short amount of, of space. And he wanted this church to step back. I know we talked about it a lot, but he wants this church to know that he's praying for them. Okay? He's praying. He, that he was interceding for them before God and that he's expecting God to answer his prayers. Before he ever gets into counseling them and trying to help them navigate their issues, he's interceding. He's on his knees because he knows that that is a means that God is going to use to accomplish Philippians 1.6. But in this prayer, he's spelled out these features that we've looked at. He's told us that he prays for this love to abound. It's the greatest thing we can ask for. It's the most important thing we can pray for each other. But he also tells us what we can expect when we pray this. God will activate our effort. We'll need to grow in knowing Christ and his love. We'll need to grow in discerning how to love in the daily spheres of life. And we will need to make conscious choices to do that very thing. So when we ask for growth in love... This is the path that God will lead us down. And finally, Paul details out this result, this growing purity for the day of Christ, this massive harvest of fruit that will echo down through eternity to the praise of God. So, as you and I walk away from a text like this, Paul certainly wants us to love. It's kind of a backdoor implication here as he's encouraging us to to get after loving people. But the point of this text is prayer. Paul is praying. And I think he's going to get to us loving. He's going to exhort us directly to do that. But I think now an implication would be he wants us to imitate him. He wants us to pray for each other that our love would increase. That it would abound. In other words, I know that Paul would want us to be stimulated to pray more for each other. Because he knows prayer is difficult. So let me just wrap up and really quick, like maybe two minutes, with a, a few practical suggestions when it comes to growing in this practice of praying for other people. Here's a few practical suggestions. First thing I'll say is set a time to do it. A lot of people just, you know, in their morning times, as they're doing their devotional time, they weave this into the devotional time, this time of intercession for others. But when you do it, it doesn't really matter. But set a time to do it and try to to stay consistent in that time. If you fail to do it, it's okay. You know, just confess it, get back up, try to get in the next day. Don't sin twice, right? Don't just spiral down and just think, oh, I didn't do that, you know, so I shouldn't do it today. (laughs) Just how illogical is that? So, the Lord knows you didn't do it, so just confess it to him, and then just and, and pray today. The next thing I would say is set a time frame to do it in. Yeah, have a time frame. Now, one of the, one of the main reasons I think that we get discouraged in intercessory prayer, or I know that I do, is because it's just, it can be very overwhelming. Right? There's so much to pray for. So you sit down, you start praying, and just like, and it, there's just it's, it's there's a lot to do. So I would say set a time frame, and may, I mean just be realistic. How much time do you have in that moment? And just start praying in that time frame, and stay within the time frame. I mean, again, don't you're not this is these are not this isn't law, okay? So I'm hesitant to do this, but I'm just giving you suggestions. These are practical suggestions, okay? Next thing I would say is have a should say have a list, okay? That would be number three. Have a list. What I mean by that is don't just assume that you're going to remember the things that you need to pray for. Um, I would write them down. Um, have some, some kind of list that you can come back to and build on. And then the third thing, or the, whatever it is, third here, fourth, really, uh, I would say is that 
have a system that doesn't overwhelm you. And what I what I mean by that is, you know, like let's say you've got your list and there's a hundred people on that list, you know, like there is on mine. There's more than that actually, because all of you are on there. <laughs> so the system then has to be realistic. So what I do again, just just. And I'm, I'm working on it just like you are, so don't think Clay's the superhero here. That is definitely not the case. Uh, any of you who know me know that I struggle in this just like you do, to stay consistent in intercessory prayer. But what, what I, my goal is, is to, to kind of have this system, okay? When I'm talking about interceding and I'm talking about praying for needs, I think about it sort of in concentric circles and I start inside with me. Because I want God producing things in my life, spiritual fruit like we're talking about. All these things that I'm aware of that I don't have, that I, or I'm, I'm struggling in. I want to intercede from my own heart that God would do these things in my life. And that's every day. That's every intercession, right? Because if I'm not right, and I'm, I'm not my, you know, my own heart is not tuned to God, then the rest of the day is, you know, it's not going to be rightly motivated. So then I kind of sp- expand out to my, my immediate sphere of influence, which would be my family. The Lord's given me a wife and three children, and so I pray you know, fervently for them because they're, they're my responsibility, so that's, and that's every day, every time I come to, to intercede. Then, beyond that, I'm part of this shepherding team, this pastoral team of, of elders. So I pray for one elder a day, because we've, and we're one, one, one of the pastoral team a day. Then, beyond that, I'm also part of the boundless leadership team. And I might pray, depending on the time I have available, one to three couples or individuals uh, at a time. Then the next step would be the boundless members, and that's when the list gets really big. Um, But I limit myself to just five people a day. And then I get to unbelievers or people that are outside the the church, uh, neighbors, those kinds of things, and, you know, how I want to see the Lord work in our missions, initiatives, and I pray for one of those a day. So again, that's just that's not that overwhelming, right? Because that's what is that? Me, my family, you know, there's five, elder, one, three boundless leaders. Yeah, no, I, I'm not good at math. So like sixteen. What was it say sixteen? <laughs> but that I mean that might seem like a lot to people who maybe aren't interceding very much, but that's not that's not that much and you know, I'm not talking about I'm praying these 20-minute prayers for each person, right? So, but it keeps them on my heart. It keeps me interceding for them, aware of the needs, interceding for you. And, um, and it's incredible, the fruit that comes um, when I'm not doing anything but asking the Lord uh, to do these things. And he is glorified. Uh, by the answer to prayer and the increase of love that we that we see, so um, hope that's helpful. Just kind of a crash course there in just some some, some uh, practical thoughts on how you might cultivate a pattern. So if you got questions about that or want to know more about that, um, that's just sort of scratching the surface on some of the things that that I do. But there's lots of people in here that pray more faithfully than me. So uh, connect with them, ask them their their processes. That's how we learn, right? Um, and just kind of how it works. All right, so I'm going to close us in prayer, and then we will uh, enjoy some snacks and time together. Father, we do bow before you, imitating Paul, praying that you would cause our love to abound. We know that's going to involve our effort. You're leading us down that path to to grow in our knowledge of you and our experience of your love and bending that out. We're aware of that, but we, we just come before you acknowledging our dependence that as God Almighty, we, want, we need you, we must have you energizing our efforts. We are dead in our transgressions and sins apart from you, apart from your enlivening influence through your spirit. And even now today, our hearts are so fickle as we're even in this process of changing. These disciplines are so difficult. We often feel so cold. And we need you to make our love grow. 
Lord, thank you for the fruit um, in this church, right here in this little ministry that we're involved in. Thank you for the, the harvest of fruit, of love, that you are producing um, right here among these folks. And we long for more. We want to see um, Boundless holding forth the word of life in the midst of this crooked generation so that other broken, dead people can come to faith in Christ and experience the same transformation that we're experiencing. We know that all this is going to come as you answer our requests to abound in love. Keep us faithful in praying for each other. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.